Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another podcast from the U.S. Embassy. Um, my name is Ted Danowitz, and I am based at our consulate in Auckland, where I cover uh, U.S. New Zealand space policy. And outside of my day job, I'm also a NASA aficionado and space camp alum, which is why I'm especially glad uh, to welcome with us today Dr. Anna Fisher, NASA astronaut, who is here coming to New Zealand to share her experience working with NASA, going into space, and promoting women into STEM fields. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Fisher. I'm really happy to be here. It's one of my bucket list items to come to New Zealand, so really excited about being here. Well, happy to uh, welcome you. You know, most people's bucket list is to go into space, so I'm glad we could help, you know, if, I'm happy to help check your bucket list item <laughs> off. Uh, check that one off. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. So I think it'd be great to hear about your experience getting into becoming an astronaut. Could you share with us sort of how, how that came about? Well, you know, back when I became an astronaut, it wasn't at all common for women and, and even um, people that weren't pilots to be able to become astronauts. So um, I just found out really totally by chance. I'd always wanted to be an astronaut since I was 12 years old, but it certainly didn't seem like a very realistic goal. I was in the middle um, just finishing my internship when one of my medical school friends um, who was a real um, NASA um, aficionado, and he followed the program and said, you know, hey, NASA's looking for mission specialist for the space shuttle. And I found out about a month before the deadline, got my application in a day before the deadline, and six weeks later was in the first group of women being interviewed. So, um, you know, looking back, it was just such a serendipitous thing like what if I hadn't been hungry that day and hadn't gone to lunch um, to, to have uh, my whole life change really on the basis of that but it was a, a dream come true and to find out that I was not only interviewed but then selected was um, you know everything I'd ever hoped for. What went into the selection process? Well I've had a chance to, to um, experience it from both sides both uh, as a candidate to, to be interviewed and as a member of the selection board for the 1987 class. So um, the process is, and even today, the process is still pretty much the same. Um, you know, initially you submit your application and then based on um, whether you have the right credentials and everything, they pick out a group of about 200 people uh, to, that they're gonna interview. And they interview us in groups of 20 and you, you come to the Space Center for a week. Uh, that week includes medical tests, of course, um, psychological testing. I think we've added a little bit more now where we test people for language um, uh, skill, I mean, uh, ability to learn a language, because a lot of the new astronauts have to learn Russian, which we did not, um, and, and a few little things like that. But basically the process is that. But the, the biggest and the most important part of the week is your interview with the Astronaut Selection Board. And that interview is an hour, and um, you write an essay the night that you get there about why you want to be an astronaut. And I learned years later when I was on the selection board that what happens is just before you come in for the interview, they read your essay and have a good laugh about it usually. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that, the, the board consists of 10 to 12 people, the chief of the office, the director of flight crew operations, um, several of the senior astronauts, um, some people from human resources, and, and basically if you pass everything else, 
that interview is the thing that determines whether you get selected or not. There's a little bit of factors that come into it, um, but basically that's the most important part once you pass the medical tests and everything else. Mm -hmm. What happens after that? I'm guessing you don't just start and then two weeks later they sit you on top of a rocket. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a much, much longer process than that. Um, you know, first um, they notify everybody and they give you a little bit of time because you've, you've got to move your whole family uh, to Houston. Um, good news is you get picked as an astronaut. <laughs> and living in Houston was a pretty big change for me coming from California, but I've uh, lived there longer now than I've lived anywhere else, and Houston really does grow on you. But when the first year or so, it's um, earned its reputation for heat and humidity. Um, but um, so you move to Houston, and then for the first year or so, um, and it varies, like for our class, it was a year for the newer classes. Um, it's a little longer, anywhere from two and a half, two to two and a half years, mostly because they have to learn Russian, which is a you know really hard language to learn, and um, they have a little bit more in their um, what it's called your astronaut candidacy year. Um, it's also a chance for NASA to have one more look at you to decide, you know, if you really have the right stuff and all of that. But it rarely, I mean, I, I can't even think of any instances where people were not kept as an astronaut from that year, but it does give them <clears throat> a year or two years to evaluate you. So um, so you have that year, and um, for the shuttle program, you took a lot of uh, training on the shuttle. After that, everybody in the office gets various jobs, and although that's not part of your formal training, obviously you learn a lot from the different jobs. So. You could be a Capcom in mission control, which I did. I worked in the area of spacesuits and spacewalks. I worked in the facility where we verify our software. And we have a group of astronauts that um, spend about a year to two years at the Kennedy Space Center. You don't live there, but you travel back and forth to support all the testing to get shuttles ready to launch. And so all of that, you know, leads up to when you're finally selected. And I was really glad that I had all those different jobs before I flew in space because after doing all those different things, you really understood how NASA worked, how it made decisions. And, um, and so then when you're assigned to a crew, you, go, you begin your formal training. And that for a shuttle mission was about a year to a year and a half or something like that. For the space station now, it's more like two and a half approaching three years because it's just the space station is a much more complicated vehicle. You also have to travel a lot. So, um, But basically the process is still the same as it was back then. Mm -hmm. Oh great. And so that brings us to actually going into space. Walk us through launch day. What's going through your head as you walk out to the space shuttle and get loaded in? I was selected for my flight uh, two weeks before I delivered my daughter. And um, my daughter was, uh, I had her on a Friday, and Monday morning I was at the pilot's meeting where we um, meet every Monday at 8 a.m. because I wanted them to be sure that they knew that even though I'd had a baby, I was in this and I was dedicated and everything. For the first maybe four weeks, my training team was a little easy on me and tried to give me a couple days off a week and so forth, but, but pretty much four to five weeks in, we were back, you know, full time. <clears throat> so you train for, like I said, about a year, year and a half. And, um, you know, when, when the day finally comes that you're actually launching in space, it's really surreal, to be honest with you. It's, you know, 
I'd been thinking about that since I was 12 years old. <laughs> and so, um, you know, to suddenly actually be going out to the pad and getting ready to launch, it just, it's almost like you're in a dream and it's not real, but it, but it is. <laughs> and so um, it's a pretty amazing feeling to, to go out there. And I was the fourth person to get strapped in. So I had a fair amount of time standing on the access arm, looking out at the ocean, waiting for my crewmates to get strapped in and to think about what I was doing. And, um, you know, it was all the things you could possibly imagine, you know, um, being excited, happy, scared. <laughs> um, you know, you can't r launch on a rocket like that without understanding that there's risk involved. But to me, the space program is worth that risk because it's something I really, really believe in. And, um, and was honored to be a, a part of it, to be in the first group of women selected was an incredible honor. But when the moment the rockets ignite, all that stuff kind of goes out of your brain. <laughs> and um, at that point, you know, you've done all the work, everything's happened. At, at that point, what's gonna happen is gonna happen. And it was almost like a relief to finally be on the way and whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen and you'll deal with it. But the longest eight and a half minutes I've ever spent. <laughs> when we finally got to Miko main engine cutoff, that was, um, a, a really, really great feeling. And at that point, I was no longer really worried about risk or any of that. Um, by the time I flew, I think we had become a little complacent about entry. I thought all the risk was really in, in ascent. And I still think that the bulk of the risk is in ascent. But nonetheless, obviously, with Columbia, um, you have entries also uh, uh, has to be um, considered but at that point, you know, it was just such a great feeling to be on orbit. And, and then comes the time that you've got to, you know, do your part of the job. So what was your part of the job for this mission? Well, our flight was really exciting in the early part of the space shuttle program. Um, there were two um, satellites that were deployed from the shuttle payload bay in February. And we launched in November. And so um, these two satellites were in perfectly great condition, but they were in the wrong orbit because the rocket that was supposed to take them um, to geosynchronous orbit failed about four seconds into what should have been about a four minute burn. So basically these perfectly good satellites worth millions of dollars were in great shape, but they were basically useless. And so nobody had ever done that before to go and try to retrieve these satellites, which one, were not designed to be retrieved. Number two, nobody um, had ever handled hardware that big. I mean, these satellites are about the size of a small school bus here on the ground. And so um, it was actually the insurance companies that pushed NASA to do it. They, NASA really wasn't that excited about doing the mission, not because they didn't want to, but they I think thought it was kind of risky early in the shuttle program. We were real excited about it. <laughs> and um, we really participated in actually helping design the mission, design the hardware and how we were going to do it. And so I was the flight engineer on the flight for ascent and entry. And then I was the robotic arm operator. And my two crewmate, Dale Gardner and um, Joe Allen, uh, were the two that went outside and did the spacewalk. Mm -hmm. So you get back to Earth. What are some of the post-space achievements that you've been really proud of? Um, well, when I, 
I actually was assigned to my second flight within a month after I landed. And then um, I was about six weeks or so from flight when the Challenger accident happened. So we realized then that um, you know it was going to probably be a good two to three years before we were back flying. Uh, uh, my husband and I decided we wanted our second child. And I found out that two children is a lot more work than one. <laughs> and um, anyway, for lots of reasons, I decided to take a leave of absence, which I didn't plan for it to be seven years, but it wound up being seven years. But as a result of that, um, then in 1996, I came back um, to NASA and was very appreciative of the fact that one, they allowed me to take the leave of absence, and number two, allowed me to come back. No one had ever really done that before. And, um, but it turned out, going back was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because everything had changed while I was gone. Most of the people I was selected with had left NASA by then because a pretty much typical astronaut career length would be to come for 10 or 12 years, fly a couple missions, and then either go back out into industry or go back to university. Um, that's the more typical career path. So I came back and um, one, people were new, and all of a sudden they gave me this thing called a computer, which, you know, when I left to go on my leave of absence, I think one person in the office who was a real nerdy scientist had a computer, and um, all of a sudden the whole way we were doing business changed, you know, email and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it probably took about a year to, you know, readapt re back to the office and everything, but there was nobody left in the office that had been there at the beginning to see what the shuttle program was like before we were flying. There was nobody left really and I was the one person who could say as we were starting to develop Space Station, um, a lot of people were critical of the fact that the displays weren't good, the procedures weren't good, the training wasn't good. And I go, well, it was just like that at the beginning of shuttle. It takes time for all that stuff to get developed and to mature. And so I felt like I was able to be a, a voice of reason advising the chief of the office um, when I felt that some of my colleagues, younger colleagues, um, were being a little bit unreasonable in what they were expecting. And as a result of that, he made me chief of the space station branch. <laughs> you know, it's that old saying, be careful what you wish for, or whatever. Um, but it turned out that it, that was really a wonderful experience. I learned how to work with all our international partners. And I went from thinking we were absolutely nuts to start out being partners with, with the Russians. And, and, and I did a complete 180 in what I, what I believed. And, um, began to realize the real advantage of international cooperation as we go into space. And, um, and it was just really wonderful to, to see what initially was a relationship where people weren't really certain how this was all going to work, to being able to figure out how to meld all the different opinions. And, um, and so looking back on my career, I'd have to say going into space was absolutely amazing and was obviously the pinnacle. But being chief of the space station branch and working with the international partners, and now we're on Expedition 60. This is before Expedition 1. And, you know, to, to look at the things that we did back then that are still carried forward and that are successful. And um, it, it, it's a, it was a really neat feeling, and I think it allows me to speak with some authority now as we're looking at 
going to the moon, going to Mars, and being to really strongly advocate for it being an international effort as opposed to a U.S. alone effort. You know, when I was working on Expedition 1 and 2, I couldn't even envision, you know, I was just glad we would get through the first five or six build flights because I don't think people really understand how complicated it was to build the space station. To bring all these partners together, all these different modules built in different countries, and for it to all work, and and for us to really get along as well as we have. I mean, a perfect example was when we had a hurricane in Houston, seamlessly handling handing mission control over to the Russians, um, learning how to use all work with all these different control centers around the world. Um, I, I don't think anyone who's not involved in the program can really appreciate the complexity and the how neat it was. Mm -hmm. um, you were one of the early testers for women in spacesuits, right? That was my first job after we finished that astronaut candidate year and they didn't even have a shuttle suit. I mean all we had was the A7LB which is the Apollo suit and um, you know I certainly didn't know much about spacesuits, so I'm sure you and your listeners probably don't either, but the Apollo suit was designed, it's a one-piece suit, and it was designed, you know, so that you could go on the moon and pick up rocks. It was really not designed to do a lot of work, like repairing the tiles on the shuttle, building a space station, which at that stage even we were not planning on building the space station, but we knew that the spacesuit needed to do more than just allow you to walk around on the moon. And so the, it was a more complicated suit. It was a two-piece suit with a hard upper torso. So it has like trousers, if you will, and then a hard upper torso. And what we found out as we got into it, to try to get that hard upper torso small enough that it fits someone like me, it was almost impossible to get into. It, it originally, it was going to be an extra small to an extra large. It turned out to be a lot more difficult than you could think to get it small enough and yet be able to get into the suit. And it was way too late to change the design of the suit. So NASA ultimately made the decision um, to only go with the medium, the large, the extra large instead of the smaller ones. So, um, so that actually precluded me um, getting to do a spacewalk because they didn't have a suit small enough. Uh, in closing, what, what sort of advice do you have for all the youngsters and especially the young women looking to, to get a career in space? Well, a couple, a couple things. First of all, you know, being an astronaut is really wonderful. But, you know, first of all, a lot of countries don't have a space program. And so that's, at least in the foreseeable future, not going to be an option. There's so many wonderful jobs in the space industry. Um, there are, I mean, engineers, flight controllers, so many, so many different areas. Um, not everybody wants to fly rockets into space, too, but want to be a part of it. So that's the first thing I would say is, you know, if you really love space, you, know, you don't have to be an astronaut. There's a lot of amazing, wonderful jobs. Um, like in Houston, um, it's, it's almost as exciting to be a flight controller and then work your way up to, say, being a flight director. Um, the engineering directorate, uh, there, there's just so many jobs that you can do. So that's my first advice is if you love space, um, uh, there's many wonderful jobs. In the United States, 
you do have to be a U.S. citizen to be an astronaut at the moment. So you need to come from a country. When you hear that the other um, countries have astronauts, they have their own space agency, and somehow there's some arrangement with the United States where they're all um, uh, at a high level, you know, have, have agreements of how those folks are going to fly. But you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to work in the space program. For example, I was working on <clears throat> the Orion displays before I retired, and the two young men that were leading the effort for designing the software were both from Belgium. So you don't have to be a U.S. citizen to get involved the U.S. space program, and I suspect it's true of other countries. So that's another thing to think about. But if you do want to be an astronaut, a U.S. astronaut, you know, you need to decide if you want to um, be a pilot or if you want to be a mission specialist. If you want to be a pilot, you really need to join the military, become a pilot, and go to be a test pilot. You're not going to get selected if you don't haven't been to test pilot school, at least at the moment. That could change in the future. If you want to be a mission specialist, you really can pick almost any area. I mean, one of my office mates was a veterinarian, and um, so it, the area of science is not as important as the fact that you have an advanced degree, MD, PhD, a master's with some significant experience in some cases. Let's see, then um, knowing an, another language is really important. Um, right now, it's still very important to know Russian wouldn't surprise me in the future that knowing Chinese would be a good thing to, to do. And, um, and then, you know, you've got to think about how you would want your application to stick out. So, you know, you want to show that you'll be comfortable in other environments. So, like, I was a scuba diver uh, before I applied. Um, I was working on getting my private pilot's license. Some people, you know, mountain climb, you know, just, just other things to show that you're not going to be uncomfortable in these strange situations and so forth. So those are the, and, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, a career in um, science and math is a really, uh, STEM fields is really exciting. You know, when I was doing all my math homework at UCLA, <laughs> I never had any idea it was going to lead to all this wonderful uh, adventure and, and this amazing career. So, you know, study hard, get good grades. I mean, when I was on the board, we still looked at SAT scores, <laughs> even when it was this many years past when it really had any relevance. Awesome. Thank you so much again for your time. This is Dr. Anna Fisher, one of NASA's first astronauts, and correct me if I'm wrong, the first mother in space. First mother in space. My daughter says I owe it all to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Fisher, and thank you thank to you. your daughter, too. Oh, thank you so much.